Bitcoin, network states, and biased algorithms. How do they relate? Is it time we implement higher data standards in tech? Today's episode not only answers these questions, but does so with our very first guest, Severin Deutschmann, founder and managing director of OpenTelos.com. And he shares his thoughts on network states enabling bottom-up regulation, algorithms being designed to control us, the data economy, weaponized algorithms, ethical tech and ethical algorithms, tech's influence on global affairs, censorship and freedom of speech, and how aspiring network state leaders can effectively influence bottom-up regulation. If anyone can build a network state, which both Balaji Srinivasan and Severin Deutschmann suggest is true, then isn't it imperative that we redefine tech standards as to ensure accountability among tech companies? The network state leaders of tomorrow will need to know what's gone wrong in the past and use that knowledge along with their skills to create a better future moving forward. In this episode, we dive into exactly what it would take for them to be successful. If you liked the episode, please immaculately seduce that like button, share it with two people, and let us know your thoughts in the comments. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Network State Podcast. Today we are joined by Severin Deutschmann, and we're going to be talking about how network states can enable bottom-up regulation. So first, uh, Severin, can you tell us about your background and how you got interested in network states? Yeah, definitely. So um, I would say for me in around 2015, I, become, I became aware of things like um, blockchain, especially Ethereum and these kind of things, which was back then a very alien but highly interesting concept which drew me in and never kind of let me go from there. And I think that's also, that, that really influenced my path. Um, ultimately today, I am running a small um, boutique studio or slash agency that is doing design and development, also strategic consulting for projects in the Web3 space. Um, and helping out some other projects. So I would say that's my bread and butter. There's also some other projects I'm involved in we might or might not get into later. And um, how I would describe myself, um, uh, I'm not really specialized in anything and would rather see myself as a generalist, really interested in a lot of things. There are some spots where I definitely have some 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 deeper knowledge, but I'm really interested more in the broader things and then connecting things together and understanding reality through this lens. Awesome. Okay. And so what about network states? Like how did you come across the book or what interested you in that? Yeah. So I was really hyped when I saw Balaji um, announcing and then releasing his book on network states, because this is a concept that um, even before the um, before the book I was interested in, I, I wouldn't have called it network states, I would have called it something else, but it is fundamentally grounded in the realizations that come with um, being exposed to crypto, um, Web3 um, and the likes on a longer term, because if you really wanna understand blockchain, which is also why I really love this is 
it is not just the technical concept, but it's also it touches economy, it touches society, it touches culture, philosophy, and all of these kind of things, right? What is money and etc. And then once you get all of these things together, and then you look at um, uh, blockchain again, you see the kind of paradigm shift. And when you then extrapolate um, and think about what is possible in the long term, I think you arrive at a you arrive at something that is a something like a network state, I would say. So I've been thinking about this, talking about this a, a long time with friends, and I'm super glad that Balaji um, put it together in such a great, distinct way, creating like a center meme, I would say, like a central meme that now people can arrange on, where we can just say, hey, let's talk about network states instead of having like one hour of establishing something that we don't have a word for yet right so so that's cool and that's why i'm interested ultimately in this totally agree i think he like really made it easy for us to organize all these thoughts that we've had into one application so speaking of that let's jump into uh what do we mean when we say enabling bottom-up regulation what, what does that mean for you yeah so um I mean, there's there's two things to this, right? There's bottom up and regulation, right? Um, looking at regulation, I think most of us know this in terms of being like a you know, more like a political term, right? So we have um, our economy, and then we have um, a state that is regulating the economy. But regulation can also be a um, term that comes more from the um, complexity and system sciences, right? For example, your thermostat is regulating the temperature in your room, right? So it's a way of, it's, it's, it's coming from control theory, like, like controlling a system or, or steering a system in a certain direction, right? And so, so these go hand in hand. Um, when, when I'm talking about bottom-up regulation, I, I mean this more in the sense of, of the political regulation, right? Uh, more on the global scale of, of, of the classic way that we see. And then if you look at bottom-up, well, most of the regulation that we see today, or basically, let, let's say most of it comes from a top-down framework, right? Where we have a state that is from a top-down perspective saying, well, okay, we're going to tax um, petrol now more, therefore regulating the consumption of petrol in the economy, or we're making things uh, like the FDA, like not allowing certain drugs or, or whatever, right? These kind of things. And the bottom up version of this is basically well, are there also instances of how regulation can happen that is not coming top down from a, a big institution, but how can regulation happen um, more in a kind of grassroots sense, more in an emergent sense, right? More directed, coming out of the sovereignty from the individual, something like this. And I think um, to, to, to give examples there, we as consumers, we always have and still have to this day the power to influence supply chains because ultimately we are the ones driving demand, right? And so awareness of consumers ends up having influence on these things to make this more practical. Well, at some point um, in the last century, we um, became aware or we thought, for example, that fat is like, like the more fat you have in your yogurt, 
this is going to increase your weight gain, right? And, and when we believed this and consumers believed this, well, what we got were um, low-fat products, right? right? So, and I would say this is not something that the state mandated, but this is where people from the bottom up kind of through their demand and consumption decisions enacted something that I would call bottom-up regulation. Okay. So just for uh, getting on the same page with our listeners as well, right? We've got two types of regulation, top-down, which is coming from the government or whoever's in charge, whoever has power, and deciding how the rest of whoever is not in power should live. And you have the bottom-up, which is the people who do not have power coming together to gain power and then influence regulation at the top for the people who do have power to change that way. Is that right? I, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't say that it's um, influencing the top, but it's just influencing the system directly, right? The low-fat yogurt just came into existence because people demanded it in the sense, right? And so they're through this, um, yeah, through, through people making the same decisions on a large enough basis, we get a difference in the world, a different outcome. Got you. Okay. And so on that note, um, it seems that it's going to be very important for the leaders of these network states that could potentially enable this bottom-up regulation to have certain qualities, right? So you mentioned in your podcast episode with Samir Azizi, uh, the network state and why the one commandment model is bad that network uh, leaders should be coming from a good place, from an authentic place, that they should be transparent and acting in goodwill. Uh, how should network state leaders enable bottom-up regulation while maintaining these standards? And what steps should they take and what important issues should they consider when starting out, right? So let's just use the example of um, uh, an aspiring network state leader who sees a moral or economic or um, philosophical issue and wants to address that with a network state, what are the steps? What qualities should they have? Let's break it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so, so maybe one thing um, uh, to add before that, to, to, to enrich this framing, um, like one of the beautiful things about the concept of a network state is that it's inherently opt-in, right? Mm -hmm. It's a non-coercive concept, right? And so um, keeping this in mind, I think that's how bottom-up regulation would arise in this context, right? Where network states are kind of proxies for groups of people um, and then can, um, like a union, right? Pool their inherent power, but that is divided right now, but then pull this together and then represent them in actually enacting, um, uh, talking with other companies, et cetera, for example, right? Expressing the quote unquote will of the people, right? And so to, to go then to your question, what an aspiring network leader um, should take from this, I think is, um, I think listening to the people that you're representing and also being clear about what you stand for and what you don't stand for. So you attract the right people from the get-go. And so you don't have too much conflict down the road. You will always have conflict, right? But you, you are at least directionally aligned. And this enables you then to do the best job of um, being the proxy for this bottom-up regulation approach, so to speak. Yes. Okay. So 
to start off, we have these qualities as a leader, right? Um, and then there's got to be a step where they're organizing these values or they're organizing these thoughts or they're organizing these people in a certain way to have an impact. So how do we get from that um, or how do we take that step? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so I think there's like a critical um, mass that you would be looking for, right? Um, and this always depends on the context or the system that you're looking at, right? Like a critical mass can be 10 people if you're talking about your local neighborhood, right? And this can be an amazing starting point, right? You're also minimizing the negative impact you can have if, you, if you're actually not doing something, uh, something well, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then if you're scaling this up and if you're going bigger, depending on what you want to influence, you need um, more people to come together to, to get to this critical mass, right? Once you have a certain mass, what you achieve is that you basically um, are able to talk to certain entities that wouldn't listen to you before, right? If I today go to Zara and say, hey, I love your products, I, I love the style that you have, but I have some issues with the way that you are going about producing your products, Mm -hmm. Maybe you want to kind of shift this a little bit to keep me as your customer. That would be like, yeah, I don't care. Like, who are you? Why are you talking to me? Right. Um, but the moment it's not just me, but it's like, I don't know, like a thousand people in a certain market or even more. Right. Maybe then they will be start. They start listening. Right. And especially and if so, it's a market that is producing business for them. Right. That actually contribute to their bottom line because it means they would lose that business if they don't listen. Exactly, exactly. It's ultimately, it's about having actual leverage, right? Like in theory, we as a population, we as citizens, we have this power, but what stops us from leveraging this power in our own interest is missing coordination, right? Divide and conquer, right? As, as long as we are divided, so easy to conquer us, right? Um, but the moment we... Um, come together, right? Um, this enables us to also become um, more capable and have more leverage. So our, our direct leverage is the purchasing power that we have and that we can direct, right? And you can see how, like, if, if you imagine you had, let's let's stick with the example of Zara, you have 20% of every Zara customer on the world unionized under one umbrella and with a certain kind of alignment and the will to do collective action right well at this point it's not about listening but at this point you can say well give us five percent off of everything that you have otherwise we stop buying like that you can even go like to like very heavy-handed side the other things right yeah. like, to the extremes yeah yeah um, but that's the power that is inherently there and and the, the missing coordination is what's stopping us from uh, getting there right so um this concept of collective action we've covered in, in some previous episodes, but for those of you listening uh, for the first time, is just having the ability to uh, coordinate enough people in a way where their actions are as if they were one, right? And it's not fractured. So um, the example Balaji uses frequently is, um, I'm going to make a tweet and a thousand of you will retweet it. And that's exactly what's going to happen. And it's not going to be, you know, like, hey, guys, please retweet this. And 50 of them do. And, you know, 900 plus don't. 
it's um, very collective. It's, it's everyone's agreed uh, to do it. And so it happens. So when this collective action is compounded uh, with thousands, tens of thousands, millions, you start to see how it can become extremely powerful um, if really every single person is taking an action that has little influence alone, but massive influence together. And so now we have these ideas or these problems that we're facing in society, uh, economic or otherwise, uh, moral. And uh, I, as, a, as an individual, I'm just using myself as an example, has a problem with um, the way that the uh, oceans are being polluted, right, as an example, or like climate uh, um, change, or, you know, we should say like <clears throat> the kinds of negative effects that are happening in the climate. And I want to do something about it. Um, I think first and foremost, you need a problem that's big enough, that impacts enough people, that enough people would care and want to do something about it, right? And then you need this technology to facilitate the organization of these people and the directing of this collective action in a way that makes sense, right? So some of the ways that we've seen this, and I'm sure you've seen as well in, in DAOs is, um, or even with Ethereum as a whole, um, people being able to put out proposals and everybody else in the community getting to vote on the, those proposals. And if they hit enough of a majority, they get implemented. Um, is this the kind of same process that we're going to be seeing with network states where uh, in order to get that collective action, how do we get everybody to buy in? How do we organize them? How do we communicate? How do we vote on what happens? You know, what makes that powerful? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think um, in the context of network states, especially in the, uh, let's say, in, in a Balaji sense, right? Um, I don't think that, for example, um, voting and implementation of proposals is a fundamental part of it. It can be, and it can make sense if that is what you believe in, right? If you think that's how governance should happen, how you enable participation, et cetera, right? Yeah. Um, but, but you can certainly think about um, systems where you don't have um, this kind of um, voting participation, but maybe other ways of, of engaging people, synthesizing the collective will, so to speak, and then enacting this, right? Um, and then maybe one, one thing I, I'm thinking about, right? I'm not sure if this is actually plausible and will happen, but, but, but I have to share and, and let other people be the judge of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, is like the idea of, um, I think if you have a network state or a network union, right? A community of people with the will to collective action behind shared values, shared vision, shared goals. Um, and, and, and you bring these people together. I think you then can um, also think in terms of, well, well, let's just imagine, let, let's take your ocean pollution um, uh, a value that you have that is very dear to you. So you might be part of a network union slash network state that, that, that has exactly this position, right? There might be another network state um, slash union that has a, um, has a slightly different position where they say, well, for us, the most important thing is actually right now, like, like um, uh, plastic pollution in general, right? And so while these are not exactly the same thing, and some touch the land, some touch the ocean, et cetera, 
they also have a big overlap, right? And I think that's where um, the where it's really useful to have these organizing units where you have a leadership team at the top that then can spend the energy and spend the time to scout the environment to find other network states and unions. They then can again with um, create like 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 a next level, right? Like kind of like a UN model or or or, or what have you or G seven, right? And then right. like the P seven because like the plastic pollution seven, right? And then your ocean union would also join them, right? And this is like like a way how you can have many many different um, network unions, but that then galvanize bigger majorities through discussion and, 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 and dialogue with others and see what makes sense where you can work together, right? I think this is a great point. And you know, we've seen it already in the traditional world because of uh, organizations like NATO, right? So even with um, individual countries, but with shared values, who can then galvanize into these even more powerful groups to influence even more powerful groups, right? It just kind of builds and builds. Um, and so having, yeah, a kind of UN of network states uh, is an exciting uh, possibility as well, uh, especially when it comes down to regulating international affairs, right? Um, and so we can see this bottom-up regulation happening on you know, a, a very micro scale, like we talked about, like if it's just your neighborhood or the building that you live in or within uh, uh, your community, uh, and then at a statewide level and then at a countrywide level and then potentially at an international level. Um, and so I want to focus uh, and just finish off just how this would look for the consumer, right, the individual to join this and, and how that would look. And then I want to jump into how this would look on the macro on the B2B side. But so to wrap up for the consumers, um, they're able to organize these um, entities with this shared mission, these shared values, these shared communication tools. How does that then, or how do you bring that leverage? What If there are ways that you've seen uh, that are effective, how do you then bring that leverage to the decision makers uh, to put that, that pressure and actually influence change? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think it's um, I, I think there's two paths, or probably more than two, but two that I'm seeing right now. Um, one is by just where, like, like we already see these things, right? Where it's like, oh, let's sign a petition on things, and you see, hey, there's like a thousand people, ten thousand people that are supporting this issue, right? So it's probably good for my brand to also support this issue, for example, right? So mm -hmm. just by showing up, um, showing your support for this thing, I think this already works. Um, and then I think there's also the, um, um, the, yeah, like the equivalent of force, right? Like, like network states, they, they don't have, um, uh, at least for the longest time, they, they won't have like something like, like a military, like maybe way into the future, there's something like private security, et cetera, whatever, but let's not go into, let's not go there. But what they do have is they still have power and leverage which is, for example, um, the consumption decision. So maybe, well, if nobody is listening to you, but you know you have a big group of coordinated action, right? Maybe it's just a, you have to do a demonstration of force, right? For example, right? Like, like um, you, you're trying to, you're saying, hey, like, we love your product, we love your company, right? But these and these practices, they are not, they, they don't go with our values, right? And then 
So you basically can say, hey, well, we stop um, we stop consuming from them. We're buying different products right now. And this will then be felt on the balance sheet right there where, it, where it's felt, right? And so that would then, should, should then give you, um, give you the attention from the people that you want and also demonstrate that you are able, that your community is able to actually enact the, um, their, uh, to, 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 is capable of global, is capable of collective action, right? Um, and once you demonstrated this, you're, you're probably in a different position. So it's generally in a public sphere, um, kind of in the ways that we're seeing cancel culture happen today, but for the purpose of accomplishing that network state's mission, right? So applying public pressure in a way that um, it's unavoidable for the entity that you're trying to influence to ignore. Um, and, and then that then leaving the decision to them, like, well, either you do something about it or X is going to happen, right? It's kind of a carrot and a stick uh, situation for them at that point. Okay, cool. So now um, in your article on Medium, why we need user-controlled algorithms to save ourselves and our planet, you mentioned that this data economy is largely dominated by a handful of giant tech companies such as Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Apple. And these companies have amassed vast troves of data on billions of users and use this data to fuel their algorithms. So what I'm noticing from this is that these massive companies uh, have such power because of all the data that they own. And not only that, but it's not necessarily people at the top of these organizations influencing this power. It's the algorithms that they've built that are themselves, by virtue of how they were built, uh, influencing culture and um, governments and the way that people organize. And so um, I wanted to ask you, how fairly do you think these algorithms are being built? Or how, let's go through the process of that. And then how does that impact bottom-up regulation? Yeah, um, love to do so. So, well, I, I think they are inherently not acting in the in an omni-considerate interest or like like in an omni-considerable way. So, so what I mean by this is they are not optimizing for the greater good, but they are inherently optimizing for the god good of those that are controlling them, right? And this is just very simple economy 101, how we believe the economy works, how it should work, right? We wanna make profit. And so that is ultimately um, what these algorithms are doing, like any other product in, in, in the market out there, basically, right? And so this is ultimately the problem because, because of this narrow framing of success, we get externalities that somebody else has to pay for in this case, because it's globally influencing phenomena, it's everybody in society, right? And we see this today, we're like, we see this in ourselves, like, like how our attention span is dwindling by the minute and these kind of things. And this is a externality that somebody else is carrying for the sake of somebody else making profit on these things, right? So I think the ultimate problem here is incentive misalignment of every stakeholder involved, right? And so um, if you take this perspective and this analysis, this is why, why, why I'm, why I'm um, saying we, we need and we want um, 
user-controlled algorithms because you could also say, well, algorithms in general are bad, right? But that's the that's like saying, well, my house burned down, so so we should ban fire, right? But it's um, it's how the fire is used, right? Fire is extremely powerful. It is basically how we generate energy to to an extent, right? So, um, so so instead of this, let's let's fix those. And I think the way we fix this is by well, algorithms are powerful tools. They are amazing tools. I think they can really help, especially in a um, age where we have more information, more choice, um, more knowledge than any single human being could even scratch the surface of. So we need those algorithms to help us curate what is relevant to us, right? Or we want those. And they can be amazing tools to help us make better decisions. But to do so, like, I, I think the only way is that the user ultimately has the control of the algorithm, right? I want to be, and, and, and so, so this, this comes down what, what, what I would call as well, I want to control the algorithm that is controlling me, right? That's the kind of world I want to live in. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think that that is a good um, summary of the idea. So ultimately, we have to remember that these algorithms are created by humans or rather groups of humans. And that's, that means that they can be edited, they can be changed. Um, and you know, we've seen many examples of where bias has been um, ingrained in the algorithms being built and that causes systemic issues. But by calling those issues out and calling attention to them, especially as we just talked about in a public way, um, and to kind of like socially shame these, these um, companies to do the right thing. Um, but ultimately that there is somebody or a group of people that is in charge and, and making that happen. And so it can be influenced in a better direction that, that better serves the whole. Um, so on that, uh, that same note, uh, in the same article, you said that algorithms are not designed to help us, but to control us and that they hijack our brains and require us to use more willpower to say no. Uh, can you talk more about how this works and how network states could use this psychology to manipulate people without people even realizing that they're being targeted? Yeah, so, I mean, like, the way that that, that the hijacking works is, um, well, it's, it's not really known because... What we essentially have is like like the way that that the algorithms are, are built today, like in a very simplified way, is like where we have a we have like a black box that has some ability to learn, right? And then we um, say, hey, this is kind of the variable we want you to optimize for, right? So I guess it's for most of these these um, platforms, it's time spent on site, right? Mm -hmm. And so. Um, and then the algorithm is just like testing, right? Imagine A-B testing, right? But it's not just simple A-B testing, but it's just like by, by, fueled by, by, by giant data centers, a lot of energy um, is being used, a lot of compute is being used there to find out. And then A-B test ultimately in, um, in, in vivo, how, um, what kind of tactics lead to this result, right? And then you just get a, get a um, optimization towards this right and what seems to be the case for example is well if i'm showing you outrage right if i can make you outrage well 
you're going to keep on consuming this thing. Oh, I'm so outraged. Oh, like, oh, what has happened? <laughs> blah, 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 right. Um, and while, while this made great for the platform, it's probably detrimental for the individual, right? Maybe for the individual, exactly what the individual needs is well, I don't know, let's, let's maybe show you something that challenges your beliefs, right? But the problem is, right, this, this leads to an individual generally growing as a human if we're presented with like new perspective and these kind of things. The problem is also that growing um, relates to pain and or efforts, right? So when we're presented with different perspectives, then we have to work a lot and then we're probably only going to spend 30 minutes on site and then we need to hoof like let me let me go off let me take a walk outside let me think Recharge about this right and they, yeah yeah exactly and that's that that's that's not what we want to see generally right and so i think that's kind of um the vector by which we are moving away from what's good true and beautiful and towards something that is more dystopian and um yeah, um, unenjoyable for everybody involved. <laughs> yeah, so it's really, um, you know, just to like tie this all together to, to make the point, um, there are multiple levels to how these network states can be used. We've got the consumer level, we've got the uh, influencing the companies level, uh, but then most importantly, we have the uh, influencing the algorithm level, right? Because although, um, uh, companies uh, are the ones running these algorithms, it's, it's actually more difficult to notice how these algorithms start to not serve us. Uh, and by us, I mean humanity as a whole. Um, and so we have to first evince that and then also uh, realize um, how it has influenced in a negative or positive way. And that also has to be a discussion um, in, in public. And then we have to determine what to do with that as a result of, of, um, of coming to that. So um, going over how each of these steps of regulation happen, um, I want to go through uh, how do we determine who is really responsible and accountable for these kinds of errors, and then how they go, uh, how do we fix them, right? So you know, this is something that we've talked about a lot with Twitter recently being acquired by Elon Musk and um, trying to maximize freedom of speech. Um, and so the question arises, should tech companies or should network states or should governments uh, be responsible for regulating freedom of speech? Um, who's really, wh whose decision is that? Um, and if so, how should they go about censorship to minimize harm while also maximizing freedom? Yeah, so, um, I mean, look, so, so, so one thing is here is um, the question, well, do we, like, like how is change gonna happen? Is change gonna happen by changing the existing companies slash institutions, right? There's like the saying, you can't teach, teach an old dog a new trick, right? there's probably some truth to that so there's some heavy inertia there to move but it's plausible that if you have a big enough um, um aligned group of of people or users that you can influence and, and and have change there and move this in a certain direction um and twitter is certainly some kind of example of this though different 
Um, I think it's um, then to your question. Well, your question is kind of a loaded question because it also because it already um, takes the perspective of a certain um, set of values, right? How do we maximize speech? How do we minimize harm, right? These are all exactly. Um, yeah, these are all questions that are derived from your perspective, your worldview, or whoever you are like like representing there, right? And so I think it's 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 not about like answering these questions but it's more about how any how it's how I mean, it's probably more like how and if a new paradigm of network states or world of network states can create a world in which the um in, in which the economy and the systems and the organizations are better aligned with the general will of all stakeholders touched by whatever it is they are doing, right? Yeah. And and I, I think just want to I want to hover on that for one second just to clarify because that's a really important point. Um, just thinking of the model as there is a correct answer and you know so like my answer coming from more a liberal perspective um but there are all kinds of different answers um and understanding that actually the governing bodies that decide how a group of people should live or what they value or whatever um the smaller they are the more relevant they become because it's much easier to triage um, values within a building than it is within a country, than it is within an international stage, right? And so I think what you're saying is um, understanding that there can be many different organizations that do this and that they only affect the people that they affect um, is a direction that could solve a lot of these problems because it's now let's just solve this micro issue for all the people that it's affecting in this uh, smaller uh, entity and then as the issues affect more and more people you need bigger and bigger entities to to decide but the smaller you go the more relevant the regulation will be for you and the people in that entity and so the more satisfied you will be because um, there will be less things to disagree on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, let, let's go into this point. I think this is interesting. So um, I, I would challenge the perspective that it's easier to find um, consensus in your building than on a um, global stage, right? Um, it's, it's probably like, it's probably about the same and maybe like in, in a building you get even like you, you get very like you know these stories of neighbors that that really hate each other right that's and a great point yeah you argue about way uh, less important things and you start arguing about things that are just like minutiae to most people that you would never talk about on a global stage so yes exactly right and you you, you come into conflict in these settings right i think i think the and i think balaji calls this like the move away from like I think, I think this is this is like like but but this highlights an issue that we have in general, right? And this also shows how 
or why it's why 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 the the idea of a network state is an important one to discuss and 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 play around with is because we live in a paradigm where our communities, our governance is inherently organized around um, geographical closeness, right? And and he says, well, um, what about if we instead organize around, I think it's geodesical closeness, right? So um, if you group together with, it, it, it's, it's probably hard for you to find just by coincidence, someone in your building that cares much as much about the ocean as you do, right? But um, once you are like on, on Facebook, Instagram, or just on a global stage on the internet, it's very easy for you to find people that have like exactly the same fire. It might be just one in a thousand people, but you can find those and you can suddenly um, get into commu uh, in community with them, right? And al align around those issues. And so I think this is kind of like one of the big opportunities or potentials here that, that seem to be inherent to the concept is the reorganization of um, governance in a sense, right? Where we then suddenly can move into these groups and then become like these um, meta organisms um, in a sense, right? Like. Like the reason the company is so powerful as well, it's a thousand, hundred thousand people working together, having millions of dollars at their disposal and everybody moving in the same direction. That's why they can have such a big influence. They can topple small governments and 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 can, uh, if, if they're large enough, be be more powerful than a sovereign state, right? It's just because of, of size and these kind of things, right? So size matters in this, in this yes. context <laughs> to a degree, right? Um, but, um, but, but, but by using network state, I think we make the same, um, pathways um, possible or, or, or possible to, to, to everybody from an opt-in bottom-up way. Um, and so, well, hopefully, right? Like the naive hopefulness at the beginning of every big idea is where if, if, if we organize these um, big entities, maybe we then can um, better synthesize how we can work together, right? Maybe it's easier for like a, like like if you think about conflicting interests, right? Like it's it's maybe easier for like an organized group of well, let's say you have like the group of hey, let's protect the ocean, and then you have the group of well, um, we are fishermen and we still need to do our job or whatever, and then you have the other people that are well, we need to dump our waste somewhere, whatever, right? Maybe it's easier for big organizations to have these conversations instead of headless mobs to just scream at each other, right? Maybe that is the case, right? Maybe it also leads to more conflict because suddenly, well, I mean, you can certainly look at, at, at examples in history, right? Where, um, let's take India for an example, right? Oh yeah, let's just uh, separate the, the Pakistani and the Indian people. That's, that's a great idea. Well, I don't think in retrospect, that was one of the best moves, right? So separating and organizing into geodesical closeness, I don't think it's a guaranteed for a better world. So I think we should be critical of these ideas, but it's definitely one worth discussing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely this balancing act between how do we make governments and regulation relevant enough to the people that it affects that they're satisfied while also not creating even more divisive lines that now create um, us versus them type mentalities um, 
when especially we're moving more and more towards a globalized world and one in which our resources are dependent on each other and um, trade is reliant on each other. Um, so it's kind of where this economic uh, structure meets this philosophical or human nature type problem. Um, and we'd have to marry the two, right? So where can you put your human nature values and philosophies aside for a better economic gain? And where can you sacrifice a better economic gain for a more comfortable or satisfactory philosophical um, life? Um, and yeah, I guess that's just the ongoing conversation, isn't it? And trying to figure that out. But to the point of, you know, is this better done through individuals speaking with each other on a micro scale, or is it better done through organizations or governments talking about it on a macro scale? Um, it's very hard to say, right? It depends on um, whether or not these groups are uh, talking about issues that affect everybody in that entity or not. Uh, and so in those cases, I would say better to go small. But in the cases where these issues affect more people than uh, the macro entities deciding, if they are competent macro entities and ethical macro entities, um, then it makes sense for those to decide. And that actually brings me to the next question, which is um, how can we have effective bottom-up regulation in a more authoritarian country uh, where citizens may face heightened censorship from their governments, right? So if we can trust the entities in power to have productive conversations and discourse and make change that will reflect the needs of the people, great. But if we're in a country where that's not the case, how do the people organize themselves to overthrow that when the, their public ability um, to criticize their government or the people in power has been taken away? Yeah, I mean, like this is a this is a hard question, right? Like, and it depends on um, what kind of authoritarian uh, country you're living in. Are you living in the one like North Korea, where it's like where you're just there, you are basically enslaved, and there's essentially nothing you can do about this as an individual, right? Are you living in one where, well, at least you can leave, for example, right? You might not like mm. it. You might lose your home and your roots and your culture and your family, whatever, but at least you can cross the border and go somewhere else, right? In the latter case, well, that's, I think that's your, that's one answer. Just, just exit, vote with your feet, as Balaji would say, right? Um, and then there's also the, if you don't want to like leave an exit, but you want to stay and change something, well, the answer is, I think, always organization right you want movements there's like things like civil disobedience right if everybody stops contributing to the society right where well, society breaks down and you can either let it break down or you are forced to um listen to the people that are forming this movement and and, and you see these things to a degree for example in china right um mm -hmm. very much like the like the poster poster child of uh of, of, of a controlling state, right? But even there, you have people that at some point say, well, enough is enough, um, and then forces the state to listen there, right? And um, I think, like, bringing in ideas of network states, I think, ultimately, but this is more on a long-term scale, right? 
this, I think, I think a very, very great concept in there is the inherent opt-in perspective of this, right? Usually we are born into a state, right? Like, like here's your tax number, you go working, you pay taxes, bam, whatever, right? It just happens, right? Like there's no way for you to choose, right? Um, uh, you, you can opt out, but but it just happens. Um, and like if you opt in inherently, well, the only way that you become relevant is that people opt into you and you're always to some degree have a higher mobility of people exiting, especially if it's not necessarily tied to, um, to the physical space at first. Though I think even with network states, like if you really think this through at some point, your life will be tied, like 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 in one version, your life might be really tied to one of those states and then exit becomes still harder to do these things. So keeping this in mind, maybe, so, so not really answering your question directly, but one thing we can maybe learn from this as well, if we design network states and we do this honestly and earnestly, and we come into this within, with a, um, with a honesty about, well, maybe, even if I come in with the best intentions, maybe this can still become authoritarian, for example, right? This can be captured, this can be um, problematic. So designing network states with, um, with the des design criteria of let's optimize for exitability, right? Mm. I think it's a great way of um, solving this issue and also um keeping the accountability right the leverage that then the citizen can have against this network state as high as possible right so you could even go one step further and say hey let's optimize for citizen leverage in our network state and i think if you do this honestly and earnestly i think i think those are the ones that deserve us as citizens i see yeah i think that's a really good point um, so to kind of summarize that and put a bow on it, um, with the authoritarian governments, it's unfortunate, but it seems like the way to counter it is to understand that, you know, we naturally as humans fall into this sunk cost fallacy because we were born there, because we have the culture there, because our family is there, because whatever we've tied so much of our identity to this place that, uh, it largely doesn't even become uh, a thought to leave more so than let me change it for the better. But actually some of the most powerful ways to change it for the better is to leave because that is what indicates to the people in power that things need to change for the better in order to then reattract you to come back, right? Um, so I think that's one of the really important points there. And then the other is um, for these countries to... Uh, how, yeah, to optimize for exitability, and by that we mean just make it easy for them to leave. Um, it's kind of like as if your company or your country showed you all their cards to begin with and was like, hey, this is what you're going to get. Um, and if we don't follow through on that, right, you got 100% guarantee. If you don't like it, you know, you can leave no strings attached, right? And that's a very powerful concept. Um, but it goes against the ways that startups and countries have been built to this day uh, in, in many cases, because in startups, you wanna optimize for stickiness. You want your users 
to be attached to your company as much as possible and for it to be as difficult as possible for them to leave so that you retain them even when uh, a, a competitor comes along, right? Even if that competitor is better, you have some time to work on improving yourself before a mass migration. Um, and so it's gonna be interesting to see what do people value more? Is it that exitability and therefore, you know, the, the morals and ethics of the country uh, as leaders or, um, you know, whether or not that country can deliver a better product, let's say, um, by having stickiness because it buys them that time and the feedback loops necessary to improve before um, people have a chance to leave. And so that's going to be this kind of this um, balancing act as well. Uh, but it'll be very interesting to see, and uh, and I'm looking forward to it. So to wrap up, Severin, um, what are some final closing thoughts that we have for any aspiring network state leaders that want to use this technology to influence bottom-up regulation? Um, yeah, I mean, like, I think it's, um, let me think. I mean, I would say approach this with a sense of earnestness, Right, like um, we are all, in the end, I would say we're all mediocre and flawed <laughs> humans. Just yeah. uh, right, like 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 trying to do things, and so so I would say, well, just embrace this, right? Don't become a false prophet that is portraying yourself as ideal and and designing things like if you were this 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 person right because then you're doing no one a favor and and but but rather just accept this and and and, and come from this place right this also lets you learn right keeps your eyes and ears open to listen to new information these kind of things right talk to people listen research challenge your beliefs right change perspective right ask who are you influencing, ask how things can go wrong, right? How can this become dystopian, what I'm doing right now, right? Like um, all these things and how can I then design this better in a way that it's not just a win-win for me and my people involved, but it becomes a win-win-win for me, the people involved and the people affected by what I'm doing. And I think that's a good mindset to um, do something that deserves to be done. Couldn't agree more. I think that's a perfect place to end it. Severin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Everyone, if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, comment, do all the things, sign up for our newsletter, and uh, we'll see you in the next one.